Mars Arcanum, an exploration of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. I'm Nora, joined by Mark. Hi, I'm Mark. And Autumn. Hi, I'm Autumn. Y'all read any books? Hell yeah, I did. Yeah, I read some books. Um, I'm really excited <clears throat> to talk about my book, so I want to go first. Okay, then go first. <laughs> go first. You're also the sleepiest person here. I am the sleepiest person here. Okay. I've got I've, I've got two things I want to talk about. One thing that I just started, and one thing that I like read in its entirety. Do you two have a preference about which one? I mean, the one that you just started is kind of relevant to the one that I just started, and I don't know if either of us will actually finish these books, but they are very like similar okay. and related. Okay, then so I will... start with yourself. Yeah, I will start with the thing that I finished, <clears throat> which is um, the Lathe of Heaven by Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, yeah. Fucking great book. <laughs> um, I've not read it, but I hear incredible things. It, Which one is this? So, I know the vague idea of a Le Guin book. Couldn't tell you which one it is. This is, um, the, to, to my knowledge at least, this is not connected to her two, like, big major series being, which, which are Earthsea and The Hainish Cycle. I don't know much about the Hainish cycle, but I don't believe that the Lathe of Heaven is part of it. Maybe it is, but I don't believe that it is. Is this the anthropology one, or is that a different one? That's a different one. That's the Left Hand of Darkness. I don't care for the Left Hand of Darkness. It's a great name. It's a good name. Um, the Lathe of Heaven is a book about a guy named George Orr who um, is scared to have dreams because... Um, not every night, not every night, but some nights when he has a dream, he has like these quote unquote effective dreams where he um, like can change things. And so the example he gives very early on in the book is that like um, he had this aunt who lived with him who he did not like. She, he felt that um, she was obnoxious, that she like spent um all of his family's money and that she as his aunt was like making him like sexually uncomfortable so one night he's like 17 years old he has this dream where she's dead and he wakes up and she she died six weeks ago in a car crash and he has a very vivid memory of having lived with her but in the reality that he is living in now she has been dead for six weeks or whatever, and she never lived with them. So he has these dreams that, like, come true in in various ways, in, in various ways. And, um... And they kind of, it sounds like they sort of fulfill his wishes in some sense, or... It, it, yeah, sort of. He, like... He dreamt about getting rid of her because he didn't want her around, but like, um, so, so early, the, 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 the main conflict of the book then is that he, um, starts taking a bunch of like amphetamines to try and stay awake all the time, um, and basically gets like brought in by law enforcement, like, you know, you're taking a bunch of illegal amphetamines, you know, um, <laughs> Uh, we can't have you doing that. They send him to a doctor and this doctor like in trying to like diagnose him and is like, um, you know, 
the, the, the doctor has this big like painting of a mountain on his wall and he puts George to sleep and he's like, I want you to dream of a horse. And when he doesn't say, he, he's like, I just want you to dream about a horse. And when George wakes up, there is now a painting of a, of a horse on the wall and he remembers there was a mountain. And when he mentions this to the doctor, the doctor's like, oh shit, there was a mountain. But like, it like it totally erased like the memory of the mountain until George reminded him of this, basically. Um, this doctor, Dr. Haber, then is like, well, I'm going to put this to use. <laughs> so, so Haber, he's got him like legally on the hook because like the law enforcement, like, brought him here um and and dr haber is like well i'm going to have uh, george dream that racism ends and i'm going to have george dream that like overpopulation isn't a problem anymore and it, like he's like hypnotically suggesting these dreams and george doesn't know how to get out of this situation and it just keeps like escalating and like you know george Orr starts like losing his grasp on reality and it's very compelling. Um, and all of this is at the beginning of each chapter. Um, uh, they, they've got uh, at the beginning of each chapter, Le Guin has like quotes from um, the Tao Te Ching. And I, I forget. I know the name of the author. I couldn't remember the name of the book. Um, but the name of the author is Lao Tzu. Another like ma major like writer and philosopher in Taoism um and like the way that George Orr approaches life in general is supposed to be like a reflection of like the way that the Tao sort of like teaches people to live their life and how his his way of living comes in con conflict with this guy who's like well I could just, you know, bend reality, like, I have the tools to bend reality, and so I will bend reality, because it will be good, and, like, Dr. Haber just, like, fundamentally believes that, like, he could not possibly be doing any harm by just, you know, telling somebody to dream that, like, overpopulation isn't, a, isn't an issue anymore, um, without giving too much away, you can imagine how George's dreams might, quote-unquote, solve overpopulation, you know? Like, and so, like, it's a it's a really, like, dense book. It's very short. The conflict has, like, a lot of layers to it, both, like, interpersonally and, like, thematically and, like, philosophically, and it's just fucking incredible. Ursula Le Guin is just a great fucking writer. Um, that really sounds great. It It is also, um, she has, like, talked about, like, oh, yeah, I read a bunch of Philip K. Dick books, and I was like, oh, I have some thoughts about dreams now. I will write my own book about dreams. <laughs> so, you know. I was... I was kind of thinking, like, that, that makes me think of some of the elements of Vallis, um... Yeah, I definitely, like the... um, in reading it, was thinking a lot about Do Android's Dream, and 
I wasn't even like looking for this. It's just like if you went to the Wikipedia page for it, um, like Liquid is just like, oh yeah, I wanted to write like a book in the style of Dick, and so I did. You know, and it's yep. great. Makes sense. And then you started. That's pretty cool. And then I, okay, this is really funny. <clears throat> I'm I'm upset about something. <laughs> Preface for for the thing I'm about to say. Red Light of Heaven is one of my favorite books I've ever read. Easily. We talked about that for like three minutes. I didn't want to spoil much, but also just like I think it speaks for itself in a big way. Mm-hmm. But now you have way more to say about this. Other I thing? have way more to say about <laughs> this thing I'm enjoying a lot less, <laughs> but still enjoying. It. Yeah, but not... you have heard of me. <laughs> so all right, come on, you're keeping me a suspense here. <laughs> so, um, mostly on the recommendation of various like Goodreads and book YouTube types, I picked up *The Lies of Locke Lamora*, which is the first in the *Gentleman Bastard* series of fantasy novels by Scott Lynch. Um, it, the I don't know how far I am in. There's, like... The narrator has said, like, six. But he hasn't said, like, chapter six. He just said, like, six. And we're still in, like, the first scene, more or less. Like, there's been, like, six chapters that are all part of one scene. So, I don't know. I'm early goings in the book. That's Mm -hmm. what matters Mm -hmm. here. And this book, like, kind of sucks, I think. But I've heard enough good things about it that I'm going to press on. And also there's like just enough good stuff that I'm like, eh, I might as well finish it because it's a very easy read. This book occupies the same slot in my brain as Name of the Wind used to. Okay. Because bards and thieves are just like neighbor classes to me. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) If if people are not familiar... I, I will give my best, like, pitch on this based on more, more on what, how I've heard other people describe the series than, like, my listening to an hour of the audiobook today, which is that, like, uh, the Gentleman Mastered series is about, like, a band of thieves in a fantasy world where, like, none of, at, at least as far as I know, none of the characters that we hang out with are like magic users. There are magic users in the world. There aren't very many of them, and they're very powerful. So, like, when eventually one of them, I assume, will show up and like ruin everybody's day. But it's like, for the most part, like a very like wizards and, and knights and stuff are like people far away from the action of this book. And this book is more concerned with just like, you know. People just like getting by in a in a grungy, dirty, steampunky fantasy town. So like thief, the kind of video like game, thief. Thief. kind of like the video game thief, kind of like this sounds like it sounds like what people are often trying to get at when they use the phrase low fantasy. Yes, yes, I thought that phrase, and I wasn't sure if that was the phrase I was looking for. So thank you for concer- <sighs> confirming mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think low fantasy is one of those genre phrases, like almost all of them, that people use in a kind of confusing way. Because sometimes they use it to mean what you're describing, where like it is trying to be about like 
relatively unimportant people in the society that it's set in. Mm -hmm. And that's what the word low means. But sometimes it's used to mean like there is a low amount of fantastical fantastical yeah yeah like like there just isn't that much magic in this world Mm -hmm. um this comes up in uh D a lot because people will describe like oh eberron is a really high magic setting Mm -hmm. because like magic is very mundane everybody uses it Mm -hmm. and it's part of everyday life whereas dragonlands is low magic because that one guy came back to life one time and he got a new name because of it Mm-hmm. He's called Twice Born now mm-hmm. because the, that right. shit doesn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Like there are no clerics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like that version of people using the mm-hmm. phrases high fantasy, low fantasy is a little silly to me because it's very. Um, I mean, it is very D and D ish or even very video game ish, where it <clears throat> it 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 isn't interested in the question of like how are these magic powers distributed? Who has them? What effect does it have on their lives? It's just like, how much magic is there in the world? (laughs) And that's like a silly way to think about it to me. Like Cranking the dial that says magic and looking back to the crowd for validation. (laughs) Like, what Autumn... Like, you know, Autumn just described the lathe of heaven. Um, I don't know if that... If you would call that science fiction or fantasy. Um, I mean, it sounds to me like it could be called fantasy, but... I would I would describe thing. it as science fiction not because I think it's like in the in the forward to Left Hand of Darkness, Le Guin has this like really good um essay on like what she thinks that science fiction can or could be or should be. Um Um and I guess I describe the Lathe of Heaven as science fiction because I think that it like um I think it does an interesting job of, like, interrogating ethical questions around science, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. But the point that I wanted to make about that is that, like, if you were to consider it as fantasy, is it high fantasy or low fantasy? (laughs) Like, there's one guy with a magic power, Uh, but it can affect everything in the world. Like, that's a silly thing to... Shut the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) It's magical realism, isn't it? Shut the fuck up. No, oh, that was earnest. No, it is not magical realism. It's what people call magical realism. Possibly, yes. <laughs> people people use that word to mean any number of things. The thing about magical realism is that it's like an artistic movement. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... When people talk about genre distinctions, I think they often want them to be like... I don't know. What would I compare it to? Like, they want to be able... Well, it's that they want to be able to look at a piece of work in a vacuum. Without looking at Mm. its history, or the person who wrote it, or how the person who wrote it might describe it. And just, like, look at the book internally and say, is this science fiction or fantasy? Mm. And I do think that there are some cases in which that's, like... Like, there are some cases where you can just, like, read the content of a book and be like... Yeah, that's that's a science fiction book right there. But um usually genres are like based on historical events. Right. Um and like magical realism in particular more so than like fantasy broadly. Uh I would describe as like an artistic movement. Like yeah. people self-consciously wrote magical realist works and so it 
more so than with some other genre categories. I think it doesn't make a lot of sense to just look at something that nobody was trying to say is magical realism and then be like, but I think it's magical realism. Right. Like, <laughs> like it's not just having magic in it and also having stylistic categories of, of realism, you know? Right. Um, um, but okay, so okay. what's your experience reading this book? Okay. So this is a, the, the lies of Locke Lamora and the gentleman bastard series is a hugely beloved book. Um, Old um, by these by like modern like yes. fiction standards of like the, this what book, people are talking about. This book came out in two thousand six, which does not make it an old book, but does make it old in the like continuum of like what gets talked about on Goodreads and YouTube and stuff. Like th- th- this is mm-hmm. a sufficiently beloved book that fifteen years later it is still brought up, and it's brought up matter of factly. Yes, like also this you yes. should read this. It's just. You should read it. It's part of, I guess, a canon of sorts. Yeah, uh, certainly <laughs> a canon of 21st century fantasy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's very funny that it came out in 2006. Yeah, the same year as Mistborn. Uh, um, that's not what I was thinking about, oh, but that is true. What were you thinking about? I was thinking about Jack Sparrow. Okay, yeah. Well, okay, so... I'm just thinking about things. I'm laying groundwork. you got to drive the train through. You're ju- You're jumping ahead slightly. So... Uh, because this is beloved, because I, I imagine we have people listening to this podcast who like this book, I don't want to just shit on it. And so... Yet. <laughs> I'll start by saying, the thing that is, like, intriguing me enough that I'm going to stick with this book, one, it's a very, it's a very, like, page-turny sort of book. Like, I am, like, just like, oh, I want to know what happens next, you know? I went to work today, and I was like damn, I wonder what's going to happen. How are they going to get out of this one? You know? Um, probably going to steal something. Probably going to steal something. <laughs> um, haven't read the book. The, 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 the sort of interesting stylistic thing that I really want to see how this develops is that where, like, you know, your, your Robert Jordans, your Brandon Sanderson's, your George R.R. Martins are jumping around from multiple different perspective characters, you know? Um, Scott Lynch is instead, has the one, um, perspective character, Locke Lamora, and is jumping around in time in, in Locke's life. Um, so we start with, um, like his childhood and then you jump ahead to like this job he's doing and you jump back to his childhood and then you jump head again to a different job he's doing where he's mentoring a young thief who was like him as a child and you get this like movement through time rather than through character that i think is really interesting and it is also i often hear this book described as hard to follow i don't think it is if you know how to read a book <laughs> but i mean boom. that sounds flippant but like reading a book is a, a real skill uh-huh. um i mean like yeah you know uh i i live with someone who who teaches uh freshman english classes yeah, and yeah. lots of people have not been prepared by their education to understand basic things about books yeah like that's i don't think there's any shame in finding it difficult to like 
follow the plot or mm-hmm. the sort of character structure of a novel because lots of people aren't taught to do that. Yeah, that's totally fair. And that's a good point. Um, and so that is all really interesting. And broadly, I am sort of interested in like, you know, the idea of a fantasy book about a, a band of thieves. Um, you know, I am a huge Mistborn fan, which is like, you know, uh, yeah so um the thing that is really grating against my nerves is that everybody every single character in this book talks like jack sparrow (laughs) (laughs) i asked if they sounded like dishonored characters and they do (laughs) And they also sound like Yahtzee Croshaw, a video game reviewer. Because, because, like, okay, so... The idea of somebody listening to this not knowing who that is is just really striking to me. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I I don't know who the fuck that is. Yeah, I was about to say, like, I don't think Mark knows who that is. I think we're in too deep. Keep in mind, I don't play video games. I don't know that he does. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... So Yahtzee, like, his his video game reviews, I think, are known less for, like, his opinions about video games and more. And this was, I think, a very popular thing to do on the internet that maybe he popularized or had a hand in popularizing. This sort of, like, inventive swearing idea of, like, you were cooler, smarter, sexier if you could, like, curse in inventive ways... And so, like, like in an early part of the book, we're talking about Locke's childhood. He's caught up with this guy called the Thief Maker, who literally, like, takes in orphans off the street and, like, teaches them to be thieves. Locke gets... So he's, he's Fagin. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and Locke gets in trouble with the Thief Maker... And instead of, you know, um, the thief maker, like, you know, hit him with a switch and, like, cursed him out or whatever, it's, you know, I'll string you up by your balls and, like, cut your eyes out and make you, you know, drink, like, piss until you, like, learn to act right or something. Like, everybody has... And and then he also ends sentences with Savvy, because he's Jack Sparrow. Because everyone in this novel is Jack Sparrow. <laughs> and, and it's the most grating possible narrative voice. Uh, like, it is... It is so of 2006, and so against, like... It, it's the sort of thing where it's, like, recent enough that I lived through when people thought this was, like, a good narrative voice, mm-hmm. and it's everything I hate. It's, like, recent enough that I remember when this was popular, and far enough away that I'm like, oh, thank God people don't write books like that what anymore. What if AVGN wrote a fantasy novel? What, yes. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds maybe more appropriate than Yahtzee, because AVGN, angry video game nerd James Rolfe, uh, would really lean into the not so much profanity as mm-hmm. the inventive, just sort of like grotesquery. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, like uh, Christ in a shit bucket. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Like ass yes. bleeding cunt balls. <laughs> yes. That exactly. Everybody. The theme song. He'd rather have a, a buffalo take a diarrhea dump in his ear. Yes. <laughs> I hate that shit. <laughs> Every character in this book talks like it, and it's driving me insane. Also, it does not help that the narrator is exceptionally bad. That that might be like adding to it, but I think even if I was like reading this as an ebook or as a paperback, I think this narrative voice would be grating against me. But also, the audiobook narrator talks <laughs> like this all the time. <laughs> and oi, I'm in London town. <laughs> He's not in London. Thief but... maker. <laughs> <laughs> it's not helping the situation. <laughs> Meanwhile, I started reading a more, much more recent book that is just exactly the same as this. <laughs> um, it's called The Black Tongue Thief. We just both ended up getting into thief fiction this week for some reason. Um, I also, do you remember last time we recorded, I was also into thief fiction. Yeah, because you were it's reading the quantum fiction theme. time. You were reading good I ones. I was. <laughs> I don't have a memory that goes back more than three days. <laughs> um, this one is by Christopher Buhlman. Uh, it is similar a lot in tone. But what if, like... What if that book that you just described, mm-hmm. but also the the author was like, you know what I gotta do? World building. <laughs> I gotta have different names for swords. I gotta have different demonyms for the 12 different kingdoms or provinces. I gotta tell you all about the gods. I don't care for the all god. That's a god of compromises. Nobody gives a shit about the all god. Oh, what are you gonna do? Ask him to make water wet and keep giants out of lands where no one's ever seen a giant? Yeah, he's real good at the easy stuff. He's not my god. Yeah, the 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 the, the refreshing thing about uh, the lies of Locke Lamora is that there has been. I I'm sure there is world building, but there has been very little of it front loaded. Um, I'm sure at some point we're going to turn a corner and somebody's going to exposit at me a bunch. But for right now, we're just doing it's, deep shit. It's just lots of words. Yeah. Lots of, like, she was from uh, Espanthia. <laughs> <laughs> and that means, so that means that for the rest of that scene, because he doesn't know this character, she's referred to as the Spanth. Because that's the proper noun for a, a person from Espanthia. And she uses an Espanthian sword, which is called this, which is a different made-up word. It's very specifically a type of sword that's kind of like a gladius, but kind of rounded at the, near, the, near the tip uh-huh. uh, for chomping. This is too much. You, you did too much world building. She has a huge bird. It's pretty cool. Okay. I do love huge birds. Anyway, that one is just a guy who's like, I... First of all, he can always tell when he's lucky or when he's unlucky. Mm-hmm. Unclear how that works, but he knows. Okay. Um, which means he knows, okay, if I run over and jump to the next roof, I know I'm going to land good. I feel, I'm feeling it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm feeling my vibes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that also means that uh, it kind of uh, rolls with him. 
which means that he can he can never play cards for too long because his luck will just start building up and people get really pissed off because he keeps winning. Okay. And then that means that maybe later that day he won't have any luck when something bad happens. Okay. But That's he's fun. in debt to the Taker's Guild mm-hmm. <laughs> because he got trained to do... Uh, this is the bit in the blurb and in like his first chapters. He lists off all of his skills that he's good at. He's like, you know, lock picking, trap finding, trap making, a little bit of a little, a couple cantrips, you know, um, all this other stuff. Archery. He's just Garrett from Thief. Okay, but uh, he has a couple of little magic tricks. He's in debt because of he has basically he has to pay student loans to okay. the Thieves Guild. Okay. Uh, and now he's, uh, he and some other guys try to jump this knight. It goes poorly because she has a giant, quote, war corvid that comes down and, uh, pecks a bunch of people to death. Uh, and now the two of them have to go on an adventure together. Okay. Um, it's interesting, uh, but also still very uncouth in the, in similar ways to what you've described. Yeah. Uh, and a little edgier. Um, mm-hmm. Just in the way of like, everyone's out for themselves, and you know the world is grungy, and there's sex that happens for money sometimes. Oh wow! Everyone knows that's like the most upsetting thing that's ever. Yeah, happened. yeah. That's that's the other. Um, the the thing that I did really roll my eyes at in the Lachlamora thing was like the the thief maker is like giving. A speech to, like, ten-year-olds he picked up off the street, basically. His new class of orphan thieves. And he's like, and if you don't follow my rules, you're all gonna be, you're gonna be like, sucking cock for money. You too, boys. And that's... <laughs> I mean... Gross. This guy is, like... He has a debtor's mark, which is a tattoo on his cheek of a hand. And basically, anytime he goes into a tavern, one person is allowed to slap his face as hard as they want and get a <laughs> get a free beer out of it because he's a debtor. <laughs> that's so funny. That's like that's like a little dab of a mark of Cain. You know, it's like this is not the mark that means that anyone can kill you at any time for free and probably will, but it does mean that people can just rough you up a little bit and everyone thinks that's fun and cool. Yeah. That is so funny to me. So he he eggs the guy on to do it again and he's like uh, internally he's like, "Yeah, you're definitely he does like this sort of like quick analyzation and he's like, "This guy definitely just lost most of his money." Which means, the ring that just cut my lip, that's his last valuable. Also, in like three weeks, he, he'll either be a mercenary or a whore. And I don't think he has the constitution for either. So he'll probably be on the streets. <laughs> it's, it's weird. But also it's very funny that anybody can just slap you and get a free, <laughs> and get a free beer. Yeah, that's that's an amazing element of it. Yes, <laughs> it's not it's not just getting to slap a stranger for free, which is already just like, damn. All right, that's a nice start to the night. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of interested, and also I'm kind of like, oh, 
I just had like the moment where the adventure hook is given to the protagonist and he hasn't really reacted to that at all and is just doing it, but hasn't really like emotionally processed the revelation that there's an army of giants intruding on human lands. Um, also a lot of detail about like, there are no, there are almost no men between this age and this age because of the first Goblin War. And then so many men died that there are almost no women of this age to this age because of the Daughters' War, which was the second war that came right after when all the women had to go to war because all the men had died. And so now everything's all mixed up and all the the demographics and like the generations are all fucked. Huh. It's, it's weird, but okay. kind of interesting. Huh. That feels like a, um, hmm. On the one hand, that sounds interesting, but on the other hand, it's kind of like the situation where there's a war and it's a society where only men typically go to war. And so a lot of the men of a particular generation are dead and that like affects the demographics. That's real and has happened Mm -hmm. many times. I don't know that I've... It feels like if what you just described was like a a plausible response that it would have happened. But now I'm like, what are you talking about, Mark? Like people can make stuff up for their fantasy books. Basically, I don't know. Uh, it, it, what it sounds like a little bit is like someone, um, going, uh, you know, like population dynamics. I can make that up, right? (laughs) It seems to be to establish one. Uh, they say early on that goblins and kind were meant to kill each other. Kind is the word. Oh, it's really funny. There's a detail where he's like, enough men died that everyone kind of became uncomfortable referring to humanity as mankind. (laughs) Because there weren't enough men in it, apparently. So they started using kind with a Y to denote humans. Not humankind? (laughs) No, kind. They just took the man out. Okay. Um, That's feminism. That's feminism. Kind and goblins were just built to kill each other because uh, as we know as we know from the marketing for the why the last man movie feminism is when men die (laughs) oh did i say movie it's a tv show whatever fuck uh but it's very funny i don't expect there to be well i don't know it's 2021 there will be representation i don't care about representation i'm talking about goblins Uh (laughs) i want to know if the goblins are actually going to be just monsters for these guys to kill and like have to deal with like oh we have human politicking while we have an external threat of goblins that we don't have to really think too hard about in the same way of like the undead from a song of ice and fire Mm -hmm. like those guys don't care Mm -hmm. they're not human i uh i feel like I don't care about representation. I'm thinking about <laughs> goblins. It would be a great tagline for this podcast. <laughs> I just want to know if, like, in, like, 70% through this book or halfway through the next one, we're like, okay, goblin POV, let's go. Yeah. We have to work through these differences between humans and goblins and also giants. When they're small, they're goblins. And then there's their cousins who are way bigger than us and they're giants. Okay. Anyway, I also read a book today. Oh, right. Damn, a whole one? Um, I read A Study in Scarlet... The Study in Scarlet? A Study in Scarlet? The first Sherlock Holmes novel. Um, because it was 
only marginally longer than the chunk of reading I had to do the other day for Bag and Book Club. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided I could probably read that in a day, and I did. How did you like it? I liked it. It's very interesting. It kind of gripped me. Mm-hmm. But very weird turn when it's two parts of seven chapters each, and the first five chapters of the second part don't have Sherlock Holmes in it. Weird. They take place in America. What? Yeah, and the villain shows up. The old, not like villain, like the murderer, but the villainous character who sets into motion the events that would cause the murderer to justifiably kill the victims of this book. That guy is Brigham Young. What? Yeah. 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 There's a whole thing with Mormons. right now but i assume you two are just or rather i assume autumn is just losing their shit about yeah. yes so <laughs> it just cuts to a third person narrative and it describes these right because it's who get it's been all like narrated by dr watson yes. right who like was literally there mm-hmm. yes and it breaks away completely to tell the story of a guy and this kid who are the last survivors of this uh caravan who've all starved in the wilderness they get picked up by uh, another group a pack of like uh another caravan i guess is the word of mormons mm-hmm. who say hey we'll pick you up and uh, take you with us if you uh promise to be a mormon and they're like fingers crossed behind their backs yeah we'll become a mormon <laughs> actually becomes super rich and the guy is, like, super successful at everything and becomes one of the most wealthy people in Salt Lake City. Then uh, the guys are like, so your adopted daughter here, um, so you didn't marry anyone. And that's, that's we're not too fond of that. You haven't really um, followed our teachings in that regard. So uh, when is your daughter going to get married? Mm-hmm. And he was like... I would rather her die than marry a Mormon. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, circumstances ensue that cause um, her love interest to uh, be the sole survivor of the three of them and want to kill the two guys who were her suitors. Mm -hmm. In quotation marks. But it was very weird... To just, one, completely cut to a different form of writing. Mm-hmm. And two, oh, wait, that name, you said something about an angel. That name kind of sounds familiar. What are you, oh, they're Mormons? <laughs> oh, that guy you just talked to, he was Brigham Young. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. So I, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for this book, um, which I read, like, as a child. I... I read a lot of Sherlock Holmes as a kid. I don't really remember it that well, but I do remember having basically the experience you had where it's like, I'm sorry, Mormons? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, according to a Salt Lake City newspaper article, when Conan Doyle was asked about his depiction of the Latter-day Saints organization as being steeped in kidnapping, murder, and enslavement, he said, All I said about the Danite band and the murders is historical, so I cannot withdraw that. 
though it is likely that in a work of fiction it is stated more luridly than in a work of history. It's best to let the matter rest. So basically, they were like, hey, you kind of made it sound like uh, Mormons are like murderers and rapists. And he was like, yes, well, the historical record shows that they are. Maybe I was a little bit <laughs> like, holy shit. <laughs> so that was my morning. <laughs> uh, I had I, I wanted to pose a question related to another thing that uh, we were talking about in this very podcast. It sounds like a shit post, but it's not. Is Sherlock Holmes science fiction? That's actually a totally reasonable question, I think. Um, uh, for a number of reasons. I don't know enough about Sherlock Holmes to say yes or no, but I think maybe I know where you're going with this. A good deal of the first part is introducing Sherlock Holmes, obviously. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, we get a list that Watson compiles of Sherlock Holmes's. Or just Sherlock's, I guess. Holmes's sounds weird. Um, Sherlock Holmes, his limits. Knowledge of literature, nil. Knowledge of philosophy, nil. Knowledge of astronomy, nil. Knowledge of politics, feeble. (laughs) Knowledge of botany, (laughs) variable. Well up in belladonna, opium, and poisons generally. Knows nothing of practical gardening. The list goes on. And um, we see this like very particular method of this guy who like doesn't even know that this, the earth orbits the sun mm-hmm. because what does that matter when he's solving crimes mm-hmm. and he's applying these like analytical approaches to his like job and i'm i'm what well, i guess what i'm asking is like is how much is sherlock holmes about science as like a tool mm. because he's so devoted in this way that like it says, like, knowledge of anatomy. Accurate, but unsystematic. Plays the violin well. <laughs> it's just... I, I definitely I definitely think that, like, science as a concept mm-hmm. is, like, plays a big role in the Sherlock Holmes stories, which is part of why I was like, I think that's actually an interesting question. Like, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I don't think I would say that Sherlock Holmes stories are science fiction because... Um, I mean, one of the things that I think is kind of interesting and, like, in a weird way, like, funny about them is that uh, there tend to be pretty scrupulously no, like, what you might call supernatural things in these stories, right? Like, um, like the Hound of the Baskervilles is all about this situation that really appears to be a haunting, but is eventually revealed to be all, like, contrived via... <clears throat> quote-unquote realistic Mm. means um i guess in that way it's kind of like scooby-doo uh and this is like an interesting contrast with conan doyle's real beliefs about the world um because he was a a spiritualist Mm. uh which means that he believed in things like um spirit mediums Mm -hmm. um and like seances and uh stuff like that um yeah, uh, and, and so, like, his, Sherlock Holmes is, like, steadfastly opposed to any concept of the supernatural, and the supernatural doesn't appear in the stories, but Conan Doyle believed that those things existed in the real world, or at least he was, like, consistently fascinated by those things. Um, 
Anyway, I uh, I don't have, like, a, a coherent, like, thing to say about, like, Sherlock Holmes is this, like, hyper-scientific figure, whereas Conan Doyle was a spiritualist. I, that's just, like, an interesting literary tidbit. I don't have, like, right. analysis about it, but, but it is true. I was thinking about it because I also started Frankenstein. Right. Okay. Because <gasps> we talked a little bit about Frankenstein over oh, lunch right. yesterday. Oh, sorry. I'm just very excited. It's... I think Frankenstein's a very good book. <laughs> it might be my favorite book. I finally got to chapter one, is what I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It do be like it that. It didn't start at chapter one, but I, I got there. You I'm got there that. now. The yeah. vibing, the like bro nights mm-hmm. I have, have come and gone for now, and we're in like story mode. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yep, yep, yep. So we were talking about Frankenstein and about the birth of science fiction, and I was curious because this is 70 years after Frankenstein that this book comes out. Which, Frankenstein might yeah, be I my think, favorite novel. I think th- I think that's true, and I'm not you, but I understand that it is your favorite novel. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking I about th- it. I'm like going through like it's it's that or Tombs of Atuan. Like, <laughs> um. I definitely think that. I mean, so you know, the question of when does science fiction begin is like very fraught. Uh, there are people who will say there is. There are people people who are totally Samuel Delaney, who is like. Someone I have enormous respect for, uh, an incredibly talented and, like, prolific science fiction and fantasy writer and also critic. He is of the opinion that science fiction begins when Hugo Gernsback, the editor, invents the term scientifiction. Um, so, like, he... Delaney is very committed to the idea that Frankenstein is totally not science fiction, nor is anything from the 19th century, because the concept science fiction had not been invented. Hmm. But uh, other people, uh, and I'm included in them, don't think that that's the best way to look at it. And I would definitely say that, like, science fiction starts earlier than that. Um, the Another the, the sort of thing that I've I've heard that I, I'm not going to click on because I think it has a spider on the cover uh, is a, a story, I think Wikipedia told me about it, called, I think it's called a, a True Story, as, as this like even older... Oh, are you talking about Lucian? Hmm? Uh, is this book by, is this the, is this Lucian's book, A True Story? Am I thinking of... I will just not what? look at the spider. Okay, just, spider. Don't, just close your who, eyes. Who is the author of the spider yes. book? Uh, Lucian. Yes. So this is another book that people sometimes talk about as the first work of science fiction. Um, this is like a a um, a book that was written in the first couple centuries AD. Yes. Um, but uh, re- regardless of where... Exa- it could be debated where the starting point of science fiction is. I tend to go with Ben's prevailing opinion, which is that it starts with Frankenstein, roughly speaking. Also, he heard us talking about when science fiction starts and came into the room looking like a little gremlin. <laughs> he literally peeked around the corner of the door. Somehow. I am a fan of the idea that science fiction starts before the terms science or fiction exist. That's kind of funny to me. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think... Hmm. I think that my personal feeling is that I like to think of science fiction as a genre as being, in the same way that I was talking about magical realism as being, like, a movement that, like, people purposefully did, Mm -hmm. 
science fiction is a lot broader than that, but I still do like to think about it in historical terms. And so, like, for example, I am not a fan of saying that what Lucian wrote is science fiction, even though I understand what people are getting at when they say that, because, because there was no, like, one of the things that I think makes something science fiction is that it has something in it that the people reading it recognize is not what we currently have in the present day real world, mm-hmm. right? Like, and the question of like how much it's unreal, you can debate about that. Like, does it have to be something people believe could happen with modern day science, whatever? Um, but I don't necessarily think that the stuff that Lucian was writing was things that people would have, uh, like, he's. He is writing about supernatural events that he doesn't really believe happened, but not necessarily because people who read books written by people at this time do not believe that supernatural things could happen, right? Right. <clears throat> um, um, this is all to say it's definitely my opinion that it is perfectly possible for a work to be science fiction by the time Sherlock Holmes is published. Um, I think Jules Verne, mm-hmm. yeah, Jules Verne's novels are, uh, predate the Sherlock Holmes novels, and to me, those are totally science fiction. Right. Like, um, the, like, those are, their uh, debate exists or whatever, but, like, in, in my opinion, those are fic- science fiction. Um, um, for, for me, um, I often go to Frankenstein, um, and 19th century, a lot of 19th century literature like Jules Verne, um, in part because, and this, I'm going to say, like, this is not grounded in, like, me having a great understanding of this history. This is more grounded in, like, the things that I am interested in as a critic and as, like, as a person who exists in the world. Where uh, um, I have spent a lot of my life around people who have this sort of, like, dogmatic belief in science as a concept and that science is an inherent good, that science will always be an inherent good, it is an incorruptible good um it is an unquestionable good um and so i i am drawn toward frankenstein as a novel and as the the quote-unquote first science fiction novel because like you know um there is a way of thinking about things that like there has always been science. I think there are people who who think that, that, like, you know, science, like, as a concept, just goes back to time immemorial. And I... Which, by the way, that is... Not true. (laughs) That is straight up not true. Yeah. Like, that is incorrect. (laughs) Yes. And so I'm really drawn to, to Frankenstein because it is, like... There are there are things that lead to like the formulation of science, but like the scientific method is a like nineteenth century like invention of like academic institutions, you know, um, and like the the sort of scientific 
like way of systematizing the world is like a thing that we as humans invented and we didn't invent it that long ago like <laughs> like it was also invented in a particular I, part of the world based per- on yes a particular like underpinning of what of like a particular canon of yes. ideas yes I, I do want to, like, just say the scientific method is a, a little older than that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it Usually people date the scientific method beginning with, like, the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, but nonetheless, you were totally correct that it is a relatively recent historical phenomenon. Yeah. And, and so, like, a, 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 I, I the thing that is attractive to me about um, Frankenstein is, like, it interrogates this sort of, like, you know, it, it this, like singular belief in like science as a worldview um and a lot of science fiction that i find enjoyable after that is not so much like you know um this this conversation started because i was telling you that i was so put off by what i have perceived as a push from people who read mm -hmm. sci-fi like the things being like recommended in a modern context as being very rigid and quote-unquote quote realistic depictions of technology mm-hmm. and of scientific theory. Uh, and I don't care how much thought you put into how your spaceships work, mm-hmm. because that's not really what I'm here for. And that's like, that sort of rigidity and, and focus on believability. I guess verisimilitude, maybe, mm-hmm. is a better word. Yeah. Um, the, you could also... You could also call it the reality effect. Yeah. Um, like the the giving the impression that this is real or could be mm-hmm. real. Yeah. Um, there, but there is, and then I know that that also comes from like the modern like push for like the the plot hole criticism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wave of the like two thousands of like oh well how come this does this if it doesn't do this and like yeah a very nitpicky style of criticism i think has probably had an effect on the things that people are writing 20 years later yeah <laughs> but um like that's where that conversation started to, to what you were talking about yeah with more how you relate frankenstein to more like and, and so yeah the things that i find interesting in science fiction are not that the things that i find interesting are like Thinking about, like, what is science? How is science, like, influencing, like, culture? Um, and, like, what is good about that? And what is not good about that? And what is, like, thorny and complicated and all these sorts of things? Like, you know, asking yeah. asking questions about science itself is more interesting to me than, um, you know, the sort of... The, 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 the reality effect. Mm-hmm. The sort of, like you know casting like casting die as a dice about like what might the future look like you know your snow crashes of the world okay i'm not sure i would say that that's what snow crashes yeah that, that's but... just me taking pot shots for no reason <laughs> it's great to take pot shots at snow crash although i have actually thought to myself man what if i reread some neil stevenson just to talk about it in an arts arcana so maybe i'll do that now but <laughs> just better not awaken anything in me <laughs> <laughs> Neil Stevenson already awakened me when I was like twelve, man. We're gonna. <laughs> I I read Snow Crash and became an insufferable person who's like, they should set an Assassin's Creed in Sumer. <laughs> I read 
snow crash and um became a transgender man (laughs) (laughs) small domino reading snow crash (laughs) um i like i could explain what i meant by that but i'm not gonna bother maybe i'll do that later if i reread snow crash but (laughs) i blessedly just didn't Um, finish snow crash i'm sorry everybody i just didn't finish it no no you don't need to he he didn't finish it either, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's Neil yeah. Stevenson does not know how to finish novels. He just pushes on the gas, and then the novel crashes out the window, yeah. and then it's I over. I read Reamby, which is, like, I think longer than A Way of Kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, what Mark just said is basically what happened. There's a part in the yeah. middle that is just... Here's all 24 hours of this day from six different POV characters who experience or are near this event. That does sound like some shit he would do. Oh my god. I learned so much and then promptly forgot so much about how flights are planned in that book. (laughs) I think the really, the stupidest uh, Neil Stevenson novel for me to reread for this podcast would probably be Cryptonomicon. Yeah, mm-hmm. Because that is a book by, like, a fucking, like, Bitcoin freak from, like, the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I... I read half of that book, I think. That's probably generous. Did, um, this... did you get to the... Did you get to the cum graph? I got... To uh, the phrase suggested some sort of endeavor with penises that I declined. Oh, that's pretty early on. I, that's my that's, only uh, memory, other than him describing himself as like a dwarf on Hobbit on holiday in the in the Shire. Oh but, yeah, that part's really yeah. annoying. Um, I, I, the cum graph is further along than you got to. It sounds like, but I I need graph. to be clear. I'm not being I'm not being flippant. It's literally a chart about cum. This helps. That, them that's break just what the it is in the book for the Nazi, for the Nazis. Yes, the Nazi yes, codes. it does. Okay, it's very important for code breaking. Yes, <laughs> I think Neil Stevenson is a little bit obsessed with semen because it's a major thematic mm. element in both Snow Crash and Cryptonomicon. <laughs> Oh, and the Diamond Age, or not the Diamond Age, sorry. I don't remember if there was much come in the Diamond Age, but there was definitely a fair amount of it in, um, shit. The Baroque Cycle. I, um, I, I was going to say, um, speaking of guys who were Bitcoin freaks in the 90s, if I ever show up on this podcast and I'm like, oh, I started reading the Baroque Cycle, I need, like, everybody here, like, both you two and listeners to understand that, like, I don't actually want to be reading the Baroque cycle. I want to understand my relationship with my father. Um, that's. <laughs> oh, man. I, that guy. Oh, my dad is Bitcoin freak guy in the 90s for sure. I. God, I would love to. I would hate it, but I would love to reread the Baroque cycle. I think that it is oh, kind of God. funny to. Now that you've mentioned how prevalent semen is to Neil Stevenson's. Works considering his main hobby is swords, <laughs> and he did that Kickstarter for a sword fighting video game that didn't end up coming out. God, strange man. Uh, My just to 
A, oh. a very brief story. Um, Go for it. At one point in my life, my dad threw out a bunch of the fantasy books I had as a kid and gave me copies of the Baroque Cycle when I was, I believe, <gasps> 11 no. years old. I did not read that's them because disgusting. I was irate. <laughs> that's... Oh, that is fucking monster behavior. Oh my god. Holy shit. I'm gonna tell Ben about this after the podcast and he's gonna tear his head. Oh my god. That... I, this is, I I remember him throwing out copies of, like, Drizzt books I had and giving me the Baroque oh. cycle. Man. As when I was 11. Oh, I think it's probably healthier for an 11-year-old to read about Drizzt <laughs> than to read the fucking Baroque One cycle. Least surprising. And I say this as someone who read the Baroque cycle as a teen and loved it, but, like, I don't think it was good for me. Least surprising sentence on Wikipedia is found on the Baroque cycle uh, wiki page that says uh, about this series, um, the sciences of cryptology and numismatics feature heavily in the series, as they do in some of Stevenson's other works. <laughs> Wait, there's... Would it be okay? Okay. Sorry. No, you go ahead. I I was just going to ask if you wouldn't mind if I returned to the concept of Sherlock Holmes in science fiction. Yes, please. I think that Sherlock Holmes is an interesting test case because to me what it shows is that you can have fiction that is about science in which like science is an important element or the idea of science is an important element fiction that is in some sense about science or about a scientific worldview or about a scientist that is not science fiction Mm -hmm. um ben's taking a book off the shelf and is about to show it to me Oh, he's pointing at the title, the, the the author Zola. Yes, correct. Zola, I guess, is also this. Um, I don't know that either of the two other two people on this podcast know what Zola is, and I it's barely the, know what Zola is. It's the demon from Ghostbusters, so. right? <laughs> so that Twitter thread that got made into a movie, right? Is that what it is? Oh, Zola is a a, a 19th century French novelist. Um, <laughs> okay, well, I, I, who, if I'm not... Let me, let me... If I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken, Zola was a socialist and was trying to write like kind of socialist fiction. Would this be Emile um, Zola? Yes. Okay. I have not read any of his work. Um, I, I I I do not have a strong opinion, but but looks yes, like- another good example apparently of work that is about science. And is fiction, but doesn't necessarily seem to be science fiction. He in, in this um, portrait here, he looks like um, Barry from the Game Grumps. Oh my god, he does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Also, Ben, I didn't hear whatever you were grumbling about. I've got over your headphones on. Discord me if you want to get my attention. <laughs> we should maybe have him actually guest on this podcast sometime instead of this, where he can only hear one third of the conversation. <laughs> It's a little mean. Uh, yeah, he can come on for one of the... Either read Mistborn, I guess, or wait for a one-off. Yeah. That we'll do soon. Yeah, yeah, he would have to read some Brandon Sanderson. That might break him. <laughs> what if he likes it, though? What if something I good read happens? Perfect- <laughs> that might break him more. I, I'm broken. I read, I read Perfect State to him, and I would say that he... In... 
enjoyed the experience, <laughs> but I cannot say that he liked Perfect State. How much of that is just being friends with you rather than enjoying the book? Uh, I mean, I think it is because we talked for, like, two hours after we read the story about what the fuck happened and what this says about Brandon Sanderson's perspective on his own work and how it reveals that Brandon Sanderson is completely no thoughts head empty about why anyone might ever want to read a Brandon Sanderson book and what it might mean if someone reads a lot of Brandon Sanderson. (laughs) So, yes, you are correct. I think what Ben got out of that story had a lot to do with me. (laughs) But, um... Yeah, I don't think we're going to get him to read a whole Sanderson novel, but uh, I can imagine bribing him with, like, science fiction theory talk uh, to... Well, now he is discording me like I told him to, and it's distracting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I know, I've, I mean, I've been owned, but I do deserve it. Um, anyway... <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, th- this is what I was thinking about in the shower today. Just thinking about Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Damn, is this science fiction?" Do we? Do we? I, I think I don't know that we own a copy of Frankenstein. I feel like I should. We have, don't. Okay. I feel like I should have a nice paperback or was, hardcover of Frankenstein. I was something. thinking about this, and I think that you shouldn't worry about it. Okay. I think that it's November, and you shouldn't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's what I think about um, that. Duly noted. <laughs> Can I maybe talk about uh, the stuff that I yes. read? Or yes. are you too good? No, please go. All right. So since we last podcasted, um, uh, I, I read, or I, sh- I should really say Ben read to me. I feel like I don't um, necessarily credit him for being the person who reads the books to me all the time. Like I said, I read Valis, I read Blindsight, Ben read those books aloud to me. Um, anyway, Ben read me The Fractal Angel, um, which is the sequel to The Quantum Thief. Um, we burned through that motherfucker fast because, uh, you know, it is also a, like, uh, you know, uh, quantum computing... Oh, what did I... It, I said something there's wrong. There's the casual about angel the title and of the, the novel. fractal prince, it seems. <sighs> okay, yes. We read the fractal prince. The causal angel is the next one. Blah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, all right. I'm getting in the zone. We read the fractal prince. It's embarrassing that I gave it the wrong title also because um, the there isn't a fractal angel in that story. There's a fractal prince. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, fractal anyway. angel is... <laughs> A pretty cool, like, phrase. Yeah. Also... Yeah, no, there there totally could be fractal angels in this story, but in the particular moment where there is, like, a humongous number of the same angel, technically it's not fractal. <laughs> I, do, um, I do also like that you said casual angel. I meant to say causal. Yeah. I meant to say but causal. But I'm thinking about a casual angel. <laughs> Just chilling. You get a hoodie on. I think that's... I think that's good omens, actually. Oh. Um, Thank you for moving... Good omens is good! Thank you for moving us along from Sherlock Holmes before I could complain about the uh, a study in Emerald, which I had already read. Okay. But, mm. uh... Fractal Prince. Uh, yeah, so, The Fractal Prince. Um, it is another, uh, another thrilling Jean Le Flambert adventure. Um, and, uh, it is, like... 
I guess it is it is largely concerned with I mean Jean is like continuing his adventures with um, Yeli and they are technically speaking working for Josephine Pellegrini who is one of the subornist founders um but also we get to see some of what's going on on earth in this setting uh and it turns out it's not great uh but it's also very cool um because uh there was some sort of bizarre event in the past called the Collapse, and now there's only one human city left on Earth, and the entirety of, like, the world, I guess, is just, like, covered with nanotech. Um, and so if you go out of the city into, quote-unquote, the desert, you will get attacked by wild code. Or not attacked, but, like, there's just weird, wild nanotech out there, and it will, like, get into you and change you. Um, and there are also, like once human minds out there which people call gin and which you can like capture in a bottle like a genie um and it's it's kind of uh a thousand and one nights um mm. in a way that is definitely at times kind of orientalist but um but you know i don't think it's i don't think it's impossible for a european to write a an arabian nights pastiche uh like i don't think that's disallowed i guess um and uh yeah, this whole, like, society that is hanging on on Earth when, like, most of the solar system has kind of moved on from Earth is very interesting. Um, I will say, I think that maybe because it was such an exciting adventure and I was having such a good time and Ben was having such a good time and we just wanted to get to the end, I think maybe I didn't linger with the Fractal Prince as much as I maybe could have. Um, mm -hmm. It might be something that I go back to and reread you know, on my own without it being like a read aloud thing um, in a way that will let me kind of uh, pay attention a little more to like language and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I continue to highly recommend these books. They don't seem to have like a series title, which in a way is kind of refreshing, but it is also a little inconvenient because it means that on this podcast I have to talk about... Um, you know, The Quantum Thief and its sequels. Yeah. Uh, I can't say, like, the Jean Le Flambeur, the Jean Le Flambeur uh, Chronicles you or whatever. You can call the it the Le Flambeurs. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the appropriate thing would be to call them the Jean Le Flambeur novels in the same way that it's appropriate to call them the Sherlock Holmes stories or the Arsène Lupin novels, because... Uh, I mean, for one thing, because he literally patterned himself after us. I, I I would like um, to get into that later on. After I've my fixation has left Sherlock Holmes, uh, which is sparked primarily because I decided not to get rid of this book before we move. Uh, that uh, that French guy. I'm going to go oh. read that one next. After <laughs> yeah. That. Also, dude, this is just a fun story, which is that like some years ago when I was in midst of enjoying the benedict cumberbatch um sherlock series um my mom bought me a huge leather bound copy of every sherlock holmes story and novel um and when we were getting ready to move i looked at it and was like we need to get rid of that and nora was like no we don't and subsequently <laughs> read a study in scarlet so i guess we're keeping it now because <laughs> i've never touched that damn thing <laughs> It's a very That's nice copy. That's kind of nice, though. You'd kill somebody with that. Oh, yeah. 
John Wick did kill somebody. And then Sherlock Holmes could find out that you did that. <laughs> no. Um, but you were talking about yeah, the John Wick. Uh, yeah, the, they are actually kind of making me want to read some Arsene Lupin novels, because actually um, there, are, there are two different things in the books that uh, after they happened, I like looked them up. Or in one case, I actually didn't. So there was one particular moment that occurred that was incredible and sick. And then I was like, wait, is this just literally something Arsene Lupin did? And so I Googled it and it was. <laughs> um, which which didn't make it any less sick in The Fractal Prince. Um, but it does make me want to go read that Lupin story. Um, and the other thing is that uh, the other day there was like one of those Twitter memes, right? Where it's like, for every like, I'll answer a question. It was like, list fictional characters that you like. Um, and for the one that it asked, it asked who you simp for. I don't simp, but I do think that Josephine Pellegrini is very attractive. Uh, and I wanted to find a picture of her, but you know, these are novels and she's not on any of the covers. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll find somebody's fan art of her. I bet people have drawn her looking really good. Uh, and I Google Josephine Pellegrini. It turns out that's a character from the Arsene Lupin novels. Um, and actually, uh... That's amazing because it strongly implies that either the character in the Jean Le Flambeur books named herself, like, that she literally directly named herself after an Arsène Lupin character, got Jean Le Flambeur into Arsène Lupin, he decided to become Arsène Lupin, but then he came up with his own OC copy of Arsène Lupin and changed the name. <laughs> like, she was like, oh, I just kin Josephine Pellegrini, and he was like... Yeah, I get what you're saying. I don't kin Arsène Lupin, but this is my uh, persona, Schmarsen Schmupin. <laughs> the other possibility, though, and this is also very real, is that she's the historical Josephine Pellegrini, and she attained eternal youth via alchemy in, like, the 1700s, and then she decided to attain it again via, like, quantum computing mind uploading. That's also great. It, I don't know which of these options I prefer. Well, what if she said, I kin her? No, 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 you don't understand. I kin her. <laughs> <sighs> ben wants me to stop spreading lies about uh, Josephine Pellegrini, the Subornist founder, being the same person as Josephine Pellegrini, the possible alchemist from the Arsène Lupin books. But I won't stop, because I think it's delightful. Uh, um, I... Even though the idea that alchemy is real is, like, completely absurd in that setting, it wouldn't fit. Yeah, people just forgot about it. I do I do want to just pause and, and say briefly that um, Mark just very matter-of-factly saying, I don't simp, is one of the greatest things that's ever been said on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and we did just gloss over that. <laughs> I don't sip. <laughs> that would in the cadence of I don't dance from High School Musical 2. <laughs> Wait a minute, that's where you think that line is from? That's from Pride Impression. What? I, um, okay, I guess I don't know for sure, but is it like, it's at a dance and there's like a, a guy who's like hot, but but kind of a little cold maybe, and a girl asks him to dance and he's like, I don't dance. Is that a, and this is part of their flirtation. It's a baseball game. <laughs> but it is a flirtation between the theater kid Ryan 
and the uh, se- the like sort of second male lead basketball player who says, "I don't dance and I don't sing and dance and I'm not like the main guy." But mm-hmm. then the, oh, the so she's okay. So it's not like she's asking him to dance. It's like she's asking him to be involved in her theater production. No, they're just gay and they're like flirting while playing baseball with each other. I guess. Okay. It's, there's no actual dancing involved in fiction. Okay. All right. I feel bad for saying that you were that you didn't know where this came from then because I'm totally wrong. I just made a, an assumption. To be fair, because... I have not read the, the thing you just said. Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice. There, there is a, a, no. a moment. <laughs> <laughs> there is a moment in Pride and Prejudice where. Elizabeth asks Mr. Darcy to dance and he refuses. And it's like this big moment in their relationship because he's being like incredibly rude and standoffish for this context. Wow, he's an asshole. I like that. <laughs> uh, I think Audacity is not doing very well on my end. Um, I also can't hear either of you two, so maybe Discord is also not doing well. <laughs> um, hey there, can you two hear me? We lost you for a second, but we got we got the gist of like she uh, asks him to dance, and he says no, and she's like, and she's like, oh, he's an asshole. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty this much. Is, um, this is, I but- think. I read part of Pride and Prejudice before falling off, and I think I did get to this scene. Now that you mention it, I'm like, oh, yeah. yes, I, I think I read this. Well, I have... Ben sent me the exact lines, which are, do you dance, Mr. Darcy? Not if I can help it. <laughs> which is, it's good, right? It's Jane good. Austen is good it's at, good. like, banter. That's like, she kind of invented being good at banter. She did kind of do that. The thing is, is that I've seen so few actual... Uh, Stories of romance, uh, but I've heard so many bits and pieces that I get them mixed up and I associate sort of iconic quotes with the wrong romances. Mm-hmm. So I'm for a minute there, I was pretty sure that it was a classic Pride and Prejudice line. Uh, you had me at hello. But I'm in retrospect, I realize that's probably not true. No, that's not true. <laughs> That is not what Pride and Prejudice is about. <laughs> now, is Pride and Prejudice science fiction? Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay, first of all, I said, is Pride and Prejudice science fiction as, like, a, a goofy joke? But Ben is now DMing me that that's a, a thing that Delaney wrote about, so interesting <laughs> i love the idea that you could read pride and prejudice as science fiction um and so of course as happens with like any cool idea that one has about science fiction in a theoretical frame sam delaney did write about it in some random essay in the 80s like <laughs> it, th- this has been a this is an experience i had in college when i read a lot of delaney's criticism and an exper- it's an experience ben is having right now as he's reading a lot of delaney's criticism which is god damn it i thought that was my idea but this motherfucker already wrote about it <laughs> <sighs> you know what's good is reading books yeah I agree. Um, I did actually read uh, a number of other things. Uh, yeah. It wasn't just the Fractal Prince. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I read. Uh, I, I read a decent chunk of um, Love and Rockets. 
Oh! Uh, which, yeah, which is a, a very well-known and well-regarded, uh, like, alternative comics series. Um... That I want to say started publishing in the eighties. Yes, it did. Um, and it's it's a uh, it's kind of interesting. It's a comic series that is by two brothers, three um, brothers, but the one does not well, do nearly as much as the other two. Yeah, there's like two of them who mostly do it, and then there's a third one. Um, but for whatever reason, when I was a kid in the library, the only ones that I could find were the um. Oh shit! I'm 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 blanking on what. Who's the one who does the Palomar stories? That's Jaime Hernandez, right? I, I believe so. I, I I actually have not read much, uh, or I have not read any Love and Rockets. It is like the thing that like has been sitting on my Kindle for like a year now, and I'm like, I need to just get into these because I know it's going to be my favorite thing when I do. So yeah, you're gonna love it definitely. Um. Or well, I I can't uh, I can't speak to whether you're going to love uh, all of Love and Rockets because I've mostly only read the Palomar mm-hmm. stories just because because that was what I found in my library when I was a kid and so when I was like I'm gonna read Love and Rockets again that was what I went back to first I have a bunch of the other stuff I should go and read it I will go and read it but uh, also I think I got it backwards yeah um it's uh man i don't know how he actually pronounces his name i know that he goes by like beto and his name is spelled in a way that i would normally pronounce gilbert i assume that's not how the man pronounces it but so it's weird anyway having listened to a comics podcast for years now i have internalized their names as jamie and gilbert hernandez i don't believe that that's true but it is the thing that I have heard a lot, but I don't think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that might be true. Anyway, um, so the, the it's it's the it's it's the the Palomar stories are the ones that I've read, and yeah, it, an interesting thing about this comic series is that it it basically has like two main, I guess you'd call them like continuities, mm-hmm. um, like two main kind of like sets of characters that are by the. Two different brothers, mm-hmm. um, and as far as I know, they don't, like, intersect, um, but they were both published under the title Love and Rockets. Um, anyway, the, the Palomar stories, which I read, are all about this, like, small town, or, like, I guess it might be better to call it a village, like, it's very small, um, somewhere vaguely defined in Latin America, um, the comic's, like, very clear that it's not going to tell you where this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and about, like, just about the lives of the people there and how, uh, like, their romances with each other and the, like, children they have with each other and, like, the kind of power struggles over, like, who is going to have, like, influence in this town um, one, like, very meaningful early conflict is over, um, who is going to be the, uh, woman in town who professionally bathes people. Because there's, uh, uh, there's, there's one woman named Cello who has been, like, doing that for generations and, like, everybody, uh, like, goes to her to get a bath. And then Luba rolls into town with her, like, 
sickly cousin and her like three or four uh, children with like no evident father. And she starts setting up her own like bath business. Um, and there's like this weird tension between the two of them. Uh, and then uh, I believe the way that this resolves is basically that Cello ends up becoming the sheriff and Luba does something else with her life for a while and then much later becomes the mayor. Anyway, um, it's, uh, I'm not really giving a very good sense of what these comics are like because a lot of what they're about is, like, mood and character mm-hmm. more than, like, plot events yes. a lot of the time. Yes. Um, and, like... I think maybe the part of it that I found most compelling um, was the the part of the story, and and this is something that's told kind of out of order, about uh, Luba's, I want to say, yeah, her eldest daughter, Maricela, um, who uh, falls in love with another girl in Palomar, and they run away to the U.S., and... There's some later stories that are, like, set in L.A., and it's about, basically, like, the two of them trying to make it mm-hmm. uh, as, you know, uh, it's it's not made, like, super clear, but, like, we can probably assume that they're undocumented, um, and, like, certainly they're recent immigrants either way, um, and there are, like, weird interactions with, like, much richer people, um, and then, like, the weird situation Maricel is in years after that, when she's no longer with the girl she, like, fled her life for. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know, it's very emotionally compelling. Yeah. Um, like, this is the thing that I know, like, on the outside looking in, um, of, like, knowing that, like, I would enjoy Love and Rockets if I just, like, read it and I just haven't made time for it, is that, like... Um, the Hernandez brothers are, like, you know, some of the most universally beloved, like, you know, illustrators and cartoonists of, like, their era. Um, and, like, in such a way that I'm like, I don't care what the stories are about, because I read comics because I like good art, (laughs) you know? Um, and, like... I'm excited to see what those stories are about, but, like, I am more excited to see, like, the ways that the stories are told, like, visually, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Love and Rockets, it's good. I'm probably going to read more of it. Um, I don't know that I will talk about it again. I mean, I... I Hopefully I will uh, finally experience the Jaime Hernandez side of it. And, uh, I'll, I should probably say something about that because it is, you know, a different body of work. Um, but based on how difficult I'm finding it to talk about what I've already read so far, I'm probably not going to go into too much depth about it on this show. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it is amazing. Um, it is very lurid. Um, Mm. and definitely in a way where, like, I can't always tell how much I feel like this is... Uh, there are times when I'm like, is this kind of exploitative? I don't know. Because, like, there's a lot of very, uh, sexy and, like, sexual women Mm -hmm. in this story. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's just what 
he is interested in telling stories about. And I don't think that is a bad thing. But there are times when I'm like, what's what's up with this? Uh, yeah, we're... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, at the same time, I think it's in part because this is a story about a place which is, in some sense, kind of, like, dominated by these very forceful women who have, like, a relationship to sexuality that is, like, not simple, uh, but that is definitely, like, part of how they, part of how their agency is expressed in the world, I guess is what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying is that I don't think that because sometimes the story is all about, like, people having sex and all about, like, kind of sexual and romantic drama and because a lot of the characters are, like, women with very large breasts, I don't think that inherently makes it, like, a, like offensive or, like, right. uh, exploitative. Um, I don't think, like... I think there, there are ways that it would be easy to look at this and be like, oh, this is gross, and I don't think that's fair. Um, but, you know. Yeah. yeah. Good comics. Uh, let's see. Um... I read a little more of Golden Kamui. I also think the sex in that is not exploitative. <laughs> Even though it's also... You could definitely look at that and be like, hmm. Um, uh, not much to say about that. Um, the other thing that I've been reading recently uh, is Homestuck. Okay. Uh, I've been reading Homestuck. <laughs> Uh, or actually, I've been listening to uh, Molly and Ashley read me Homestuck. Um, oh, that's a good way to live. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let Me Tell You About Homestuck is a great podcast. I, I have listened to all of it that exists. This time around, I'm just doing the alpha track because I don't want to bother with jumping around. Um, and that's the one where they actually got to the end. Mm-hmm. I think. Oh, maybe they did that on the... I don't remember. Anyway, um, that's the one that I chose. Uh, Yeah. I'm doing this in part because of Homestuck Made This World, which, like, a lot of people we know are rereading Homestuck because of that podcast. Um, I didn't get on that bandwagon at first because I was kind of like, I've read Homestuck a lot. Like, I actually remember it pretty well. I don't think I need to, like, refresh my memory to be able to follow this podcast. And that's true. Um, but as they got into the parts of Homestuck that are better, I was like, oh, but this is good. I want to remember <laughs> how this is. Um and it's been interesting. There's definitely, like, some some things about it that that I've always known were weak, but because I'm reevaluating it now from a perspective of, like, listening to this podcast with at least one host who is coming to the comic with, like... He's coming to the comic not with, like, no charity, but he is not coming to the comic with any pre-existing love whatsoever. You know, he has no reason to tolerate things that actually suck. Right. Um, And so he'll be like, these programming jokes are interminable and boring. And for me, it's like, when I first read those programming jokes in 2010, Mm -hmm. that was a time period in my life when... 
I would read Penny Arcade. And as I've frequently told you, I don't play video games. <laughs> so I did not, I did not understand like 85% of what Penny Arcade was about. However, it's very easy to recognize the joke structure in Penny Arcade. Yes. Like, you can tell what they're setting up, and you're like, ah, I, I understand. Uh, this game violence. company is... <laughs> yeah, or it's like, oh, I get it. This game company is, like, super evil, and, and so, like, that's the joke. <laughs> and, and my point is, when I was, like, 18, mm-hmm. um, I was very capable of reading jokes that were not at all funny to me, and finding them funny because I knew that people I knew would find them funny. Um, mm-hmm. yes. And so that, that was the, uh, mindset in which I read a lot of early Homestuck. And even as I've revisited it in, in later years and have always been like, oh yeah, you know, act one's not great or whatever. Mm. Um, it's still always been kind of through that lens of like my first experience. And so like, you know, for example, like the capture log stuff, um, even on this revisiting, I'm still like, yeah, I think some of this is kind of cute, you know? Mm-hmm. But I also, I think, am way more conscious now of how it would not be even slightly cute to me now if I was reading it for the first time. Um, And, uh, yeah, one thing that was, like, incredibly striking and incredibly strange for me when I was listening to Homestuck Made This World is that... um. Uh, there's a point on the episode where uh, Michael brings up the Hyraduels from the Book of the New Sun. And when he's like, and when I was reading this part, it made me think of the Hyraduels. I was like, <gasps> and then they talk about like relationships or like similarities between Homestuck and the Book of the New Sun for like, I think like 15 minutes and probably not that long, but they talk about that and how both of them, or at least Michael definitely... Well, okay, of course, Cameron. Yeah, Michael had read The Book of the New Sun before reading Homestuck. Like, he had read it, like, pretty young. And then he read Homestuck, like, I don't know, maybe in... I, I forget when, how exactly old he was. But, yeah. like, later than that, but still pretty young. Um, and obviously, Cameron is reading it now for the first time and has read The Book of the New Sun before. And something they both expressed was, like, Oh, I can totally see how if instead of having read the book of the new sun first, you read Homestuck first, such and such would strike you in this way. And I was sitting there like, yeah, I did read Homestuck before the book of the new sun. And, and, and it did strike me that way. Holy shit. Like, did these guys realize that they're talking about me? (laughs) And like, of course they do realize that, but like, it was just a very strange experience because the thought of, like, maybe there's some similarities between Homestuck and the Book of the New Sun is a thought I've had in my head for, like, years. And Ben doesn't want to hear it because Ben's not interested in Homestuck. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of an exaggeration. He has listened to me talk about this, actually. But, like, it was just... I think, honestly, that that moment might have been when I was like, I am going to reread Homestuck because, God damn it, there is thematic and character stuff in there that I care about and that I think is good and like time and like cringe (laughs) and like culture changing and other people reading this and thinking it's not good can't actually shift me from that fundamentally there Um, there was a very funny moment um, 
I, in part because of things I've discussed earlier in the episode, I went through a phase, as, as a kid, I loved fantasy novels. And, and I went through some years as a teen where it was like, I don't like fantasy novels. I think they're like juvenile and dumb. And like, in, during these years, I got pretty into Homestuck for a little while. Um, and, um, it was very funny. I'm one episode behind on Let Me Tell You About Homestuck, uh, or not Let Me Tell You, um, <laughs> Homestuck Made This World. Um, so the, the last episode I listened to, episode two, part one, um, they start getting into like act three of Homestuck where, which is, you know, in, in Cameron's words is like, where Han- where Homestuck starts transforming into fantasy novel bullshit. And Cameron throughout this episode is fucking fed up with it. And I remember, <laughs> like, this is the moment where I was like, oh, I love Homestuck. And it's so funny looking back at it now, realizing that, like, oh, I always liked fantasy novels. And Homestuck was just, like, a socially acceptable, like, outlet for that love at that time. At, at that moment in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And I have, I have been pretty slow to reread Homestuck. I'm certainly not keeping up with the, like, I'm not going to keep pace with the podcast, even as I listen to the podcast. Um, because while I don't remember a lot of stuff, I, I really liked the first five acts of Homestuck as I read it. And like, I, I, don't care that i'm gonna get spoiled on stuff i will read homestuck on my own time you know um it was just very nice and fun to um like get this moment of like oh i always was this person (laughs) yeah i was always predisposed to liking sanderson (laughs) yeah there's like I think that Homestuck's relationship to what uh, might be termed fantasy novel bullshit is is interesting because it's got a lot of it, mm-hmm. you know? Like, the fucking air of breath. The air of breath. What's that? <laughs> Folks, we love him. <laughs> uh, but, like, you know, it's got, it's got fucking denizens. It's got lands. It's got classpects. It, it's, um... You know, it's got that uh, most delightful of things in any fantasy context, which is an elaborate schema into which you can slot yourself. Yes. Um, I thought you were going to say maps. Which, it also has that. Oh, sick. <laughs> it does have... It doesn't have... Hmm. Does it have maps? Yeah, there's there's some maps that are important to Homestuck. I don't think it has maps in the way that Tolkien has maps. I mean, it know? does have the actual planet Earth. You can go to John Egbert's house. <laughs> that's true it has gps coordinates um uh but but what homestuck has more than maps i would say is like uh like 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 charts yes like i feel like the most important map i could think of in homestuck is um like the most important map would be the map that like the the image that shows you where like Skya and Prospit and Durse and the Furthest Ring all are relating to each other. Um, but I think elements of Homestuck that could that are that feel like maps to me, but that totally aren't maps, are the images that 
show you via usually a series of colored lines, or sometimes via like a flash, how a particular object or person traveled through time and through different universes to get from point A to point Z. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I guess that, right. I had an argument with Ben the other night about whether Homestuck... I was like, Homestuck is definitely fantasy, but I think it's also science fiction. And Ben was like, I don't think that's true. And and we argued about it. Um, and a lot of this came down to me being like, but it has the vibes. <laughs> um, it does have I, the vibes. It does. It does. It has some of the vibes. I don't know what um, vibes it has. I haven't read Homestuck. I mean, it's got like an alien race who are trying to conquer the galaxy. That's, like, a thing that's just in Homestuck. Yeah. So, like, that's pretty science fictional, I think. But also, like, also I'm being flippant about this. <laughs> Basically, as I'm returning to Homestuck's character writing, I am, at the same time, finding myself genuinely compelled by it. And not just in a nostalgic way. Like, I genuinely do think that Andrew Hussey, at least in Homestuck, like had a, a a huge talent for compelling character writing and compelling character interactions. Um, even to the degree that, like, characters who basically don't get anything to do in the story and don't really get any kind of development, like Nepeta, um, still have really clear and compelling, like, personas from the moment you meet them which is why there are people out there who kin Nepeta despite there being fucking nothing mm-hmm. she's a cat there <laughs> like she's she's basically yeah she's basically just a cat and a furry and she likes to rp and uh she's you know kind of a sweet girl who's nervous and also she likes to kill things um and both of those things obviously follow from her being a cat um so as I say, there's not a ton there, and yet, like, I also think that people are telling the truth when they say they kin Nepeta, because, like, I think Andrew Hussey manages to breathe a huge amount of life into this character who they also just don't actually put that much effort into. Um, and so then with the characters that they do put effort into, like Karkat, like Vriska, like John, um, those characters end up being... I don't know, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, Even as, like, their character arcs and their personalities and their relationships end up being entangled in, like, bizarre plot shit that I think, I think the bizarre plot shit is a lot less compelling to me on this reread. Um, Because... I have read the Book mm. of the New Sun now. <laughs> right. And and not just that specific work, but, like, other things that have a convoluted plot where a bunch of weird stuff links up. Um, or, like, other sort of huge fantasy works that, like, manage to make everything come together in a super satisfying conclusion at the end. I don't know if you've ever heard of anyone doing that. No. Um, I don't think it's ever been attempted. <laughs> uh I, I i've read more other stuff that is maybe attempting some of what homestuck attempts and also i've seen how lackluster the like in some sense how lackluster the end of homestuck was and also in some sense how lackluster the stuff after the end of homestuck was 
and how much it is like trying to recapture a magic that that I think can't be recaptured. Um, but uh, yeah. So you know, I guess in a certain sense, I'm still very early on in my reread of Homestuck. I'm only on Act Five. Um, God. <laughs> But it's been a really interesting experience, and it's probably going to continue to be very interesting and also very, like, emotional, uh-huh. I guess, for me. <sighs> I mean, this has been over ten years of my life that this comic has been involved in my life. God. Um, when I first read this comic, I, I didn't have the term for it at the time because I wasn't on Tumblr, and I'm actually not even sure how prevalent this term was in 2010, but when I read this comic... I kinned Terezi and my best friend, whom I also hated, kinned Vriska. And that was a very intense experience, as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, uh, And now I'm actually a grown adult, and maybe I still kin fictional characters, but uh, it doesn't... I think, at least for me, kinning is kind of like smoking weed, which is to say that it's never going to be the same as it was when you're 18, and that's, like, not a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) anyway. Yeah, that's that's Homestuck. That's about what I have to say about Homestuck. I've heard of this before. But have you been told about it? I have been told about it a few times. <laughs> I, I read the first part. Mm-hmm. The first act, please. The, the parts are act. different. Oh, shut the fuck up. <laughs> it's got a prelude in the prelude to the Stormlight Archive, and then the prologue of The Way of Kings are different. You actually get mad <laughs> when I confuse the prelude and the prologue, yeah, so don't different. give this to me. Shut up. <laughs> You have actually corrected me <laughs> on air for other podcasts that are not about Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> Every podcast we do is secretly about Brandon Sanderson. That's not true. That's, That's impossible. impossible. Every podcast I do is secretly about the Book of the New Sun. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> especially, especially the the secret one that I'm about to start mm-hmm. uh, that I mentioned to you before we recorded. Yeah. Well, uh, it seems like we, we did invoked, a two-hour episode. <laughs> we invoked them too. Oh much, my god! And now the 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 thieves of our books have come to steal away our time this evening. As we- should we just not talk about Mistborn? <laughs> now, like, should we just not do the Mistborn section? You. You two could record it tomorrow, I won't be there, or we could just record about Mistborn in two weeks. Either way. Or if you want to get really freaky with it, I could just put this in export. And we can just no, start no, fresh no, no. next time. This is, <laughs> this is going in the Arcadum okay. feed. But okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, well then, Okay, I'll... well we don't have to make that decision like right right now. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to propose the idea, because like, we got a podcast episode This is here. just a standalone episode, perhaps. So... I mean, do we... Well, how do y'all feel about it? Do you want to just put this out and, like... Well, let's sleep on it. Yeah, let, let's... Yeah. Okay. Well, just in case... You know what else we read this week? Mistborn. Mistborn. What? <laughs> I'm throwing to the <laughs> future. To... So oh, I can... okay. I was like, no, we're not doing this. 
That's why I said just in case. Okay. I want a clean audio that matches our audio okay. setup right now, so I can say. Present Nora is trying to shake hands with future Nora, <laughs> okay. but uh, these things so rarely work out in Paradox Space. I think there was one Sorry. more book that we all read this time. What was that? It was Mistborn, The Final Empire, now more commonly just known as Mistborn, by Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> Let's talk about it. Where can people find you I'm online, gonna... <laughs> Mark? <laughs> oh, I was just going to stop my recording, but right, if we do put this out alone. um, I'm on Twitter at Char Asnablunt. And you can listen to my other podcast, Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements, uh, which despite what I said earlier is actually about Moby Dick, um, at abnormalmapping.com slash whale. Uh, we finished Moby Dick, so we're done with that book, um, and now we're gonna keep talking about Moby Dick, because it turns out there's, like, an enormous number of films and, you know, TV miniseries and comics and, um, emoji works? Based on Moby Dick. Uh, so we're going to just talk about all of that stuff. Is for a Moby while. Dick public domain? Oh, yeah. Okay. Anything before like 1926? I believe 1926 is, is the year, yeah. Although, yeah, I think. So with Sherlock Holmes specifically, there's a very weird thing where some of the stories are public domain and some are not. So the. Right. Uh, there was a whole. I read about this where there was a, a description. Uh, a debate over so like it, okay you can use Sherlock like, Holmes but he didn't really show emotion until this book so if by having an empathetic it's like, Sherlock Holmes you're actually violating this copyright yeah it's the one specific detail that sometimes comes up is that Sherlock Holmes explicitly only learns to respect women later in the stories so if you have a Sherlock Holmes who respects women then you're violating copyright but if he is a misogynist, then he might be the public domain version. Great. Not to be confused with Herlock Sholmes. Not to be confused. No. Different guy. Oh, you mean the character from the Arsène Lupin novels? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Autumn. Anyway, yeah, that's me. <laughs> You find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. All the other podcasts at exportodd.io. That's also the Patreon where you can give us a dollar and you can listen to ornate stairwells early. You can listen to hot singles early. This podcast. This podcast early. You know what else you can do? What else? You can help us move. We need money. We're moving to another state. We need money. I, I can say as a subscriber to that Patreon, I've always found it enormously rewarding. Um, all the... Basically, every show that comes out of there is gold, and uh, it's really fun. It makes me feel like a special person to get them early. Yeah. Uh, and also, today we finished season one of Back to the Ark. We've watched a whole season of Marvel Hornets. We're taking a little break, because uh, I'm moving. Mm -hmm. I'm moving with Autumn. We're moving at the same time to the same place. That's great, because we currently live in the same place, and also you signed the lease. I did sign the lease. Yeah. So I'm glad to know that you're moving to the same place that I am. Uh, you should also listen to... Well, you should find me on Twitter at NeitherNora. Find my stuff at NoraBlake.online. But on top of that, you can find me on such podcasts as Journal Updated at the Second Best Game Club. We just played... Until Dawn. That's the one. You've been playing Skyrim for next month before you finished Until Dawn. Yes. And so you've thrown yourself off. 
Well, I'm moving is the thing, and Skyrim is big, so I played it early. Um, we're doing Skyrim next for our December 1st episode. Uh, then after that, we're doing Portal, because it turns out if you only ever play games with, like, narrative choices, uh, you're going to play a lot of bad video games. So we're going to mix it up. We're going to play Portal, uh, which is just a good video game. One of the greats. One of the greats. Uh, and again, that's exportodd.io or patreon.com slash exportaudio if you want to get this podcast early, get other podcasts early, get exclusive podcasts. Um, there's, you know, all sorts of stuff. There's that one time that I walked Crystal through a Choose Your Own Adventure book on a podcast. Mm -hmm. That was fun. Oh, I still have to listen to that. It's delightful. It's that came out like at a time when I wasn't listening to a bunch of podcasts, but I need to. I I I, I was like, oh, that's so good, and then I never got around to. We it make up the rules on the spot because there's a uh, a bunch of endings, and not all of them are like cool deaths. Sometimes they're just like, eh, you fucked off and lived okay ever after. Mm-hmm. So you know, we had to mine for the content a little more. But that was fun, and I have plans to do that again at some point. Yeah, give us money, listen to our podcasts, and follow us on Twitter. It's a... I'm going to talk to you. Yeah, you're going to talk to Good night. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon.